Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, good morning, everybody. We are going to get started in our Bible study this morning, and I'm just, I'm really excited about this, this message today and this end of this chapter. What an amazing scene when we get to ride back with Jesus in Revelation 19 and, and watch all the armies that have taken up arms against our Lord just get wiped out. It's going to be awesome when a righteous king takes his spot. So before we, before we begin, let's open up in prayer and petition the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you, Lord, so much for this time together. God, I thank you for preserving your word for all of us. God, in all of these thousands of years that you wrote down your message for us. Lord, and it's authenticated by writing history in advance, and it proves itself over and over and over. And God, we just thank you so much that it is your love letter to us. And that God, on the other side of this, we are your heritage and your inheritance. And that Lord, I thank you that you are gathering together a family to serve you in a mighty way in these last days of the church age. Thank you, God. Be with us this morning as we study your word and teach us everything by your anointing, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, so if you're new here but and have never heard this, anytime you study the Bible, you need to lean on the Holy Spirit to teach you everything. And that's from 1 John 2, 27 and 28, the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And so that when you have the Holy Spirit, when you're born again and a believer and you have the Holy Spirit, it will teach you, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything out of the Bible if you give him the chance. And that's the amazing thing. You don't need anyone else to teach it to you but God. And then when you have church and fellowship and one another, you help sharpen one another. You can learn and glean things from other people, but you always take it back to the Holy Spirit and let him confirm it for you. So Acts 17, 11, right? Search the scriptures and prove these things to be so. So we're finishing up. We're in the last kind of part of Zechariah. And as a reminder, it's after the children of Israel were released from Babylon. So it's the post-exile period in Israel's history. And they're back trying to rebuild their temple. And they don't get very far. And Haggai is raised up by God to really implore them to press on and finish the temple but they don't get very far. And so Zechariah is raised up to try to get them to press on to spiritual maturity to finish the temple. And so that's Zechariah's call is very unique and very special, but it's, it's an amazing book. The entire book just speaks about Jesus from beginning to end. And it's very prophetic. It's, it's all about Jesus's first arrival and then his second arrival. And there's so much that the Lord talks about. And today on these bullets here. We're going to take the second to the last one, Jesus being pierced or crucified. And so that's what we're going to cover today in chapter 12. So on the outline, 
remember Zechariah had these 10 visions that covered from chapter one, verse seven to chapter six, verse 15, and all of them were given in one night. And so Zechariah was, he probably was up all night tossing and turning and wrestling with these, but they were all given in one night. And then after that, in chapter seven and eight, God gives the Jews, really Israel, great encouragement that he's gonna turn their fasting into feast days and their sorrow into joy. And that, that took over chapter seven and eight. And then the first arrival of Christ was chapter nine through 11. And then the second arrival of Christ, where we are now in chapters 12 through 14, is what we're covering. So you can kind of look at the outline of Zechariah, each chapter speaking of Jesus in a different way. The writing one, measuring, cleansing, empowering, judging, crowned, rebuking, restoring, kingly. Remember Zechariah 9.9, behold thy king cometh. And he fulfilled that, Jesus fulfilled that to the day when he rode in on the donkey in Jerusalem in the, in the gospels. The blessing, the shepherding, the returning in chapter 12, it starts that, the smitten one and then the reigning one from chapter 14. Okay, so just each chapter speaking of Jesus in a different way. Now chapter 12 is going to set the staging ground for really one of the more climactic events in the entire Bible, which is Christ's return against the armies that have taken up arms against him at the end of the tribulation. So keep in mind the prophetic layout. The church has to be removed in the rapture, then the Antichrist can be revealed, 2 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Once the Antichrist is revealed, then he takes over the world, the 10 kings. He puts three of them down. The other seven consolidate power to him. He affirms a covenant with, with Israel, which starts the 70th week of Daniel from Daniel 9, the seven-year tribulation. And at the end of that tribulation, that seven-year period, all of the armies of the earth and the Antichrist led have surrounded Jerusalem to wipe off the map forever, Jerusalem, and take up arms against Christ. And in Revelation 19, that's when the, the time and space itself splits open. We ride back with Jesus and this, Zechariah 12, is detailing what that staging ground looks like. And all of you are familiar with the Battle of Armageddon. And there really is no battle. It's more of just a staging ground. There's no war. They don't, we don't come back with Jesus and watch him fight a war against what he created. He just lets their molecules go and they dissolve right there. And that's all in Zechariah 14. And, and then Isaiah 63, he goes to rescue Israel or the remnant that have fled. So in any case, and then that's when he sets up the kingdom. And that kingdom is established by power, not persuasion. And it follows the divine judgment upon the Gentile world powers. So 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, this is the Davidic covenant, which will be set up and start when Jesus sits on his throne in Jerusalem. So and when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. Jesus is of the house of David, the lineage of David. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so that's the Davidic covenant that his throne would be established forever. And so all of this, we won't go through all 17 of these items, but in your notes here, this is everything that chapter 12 covers. And so it's deep. There's a, lot, there's a lot in chapter 12 that God goes into. 
It's pretty amazing. It's a very deep chapter. Okay, so this final section in chapter 12 here, 12 to 14, it generally forms one prophecy, the return of, the, of our Lord, like I mentioned. In chapter 12 here, verses one through three cover the siege of Jerusalem preceding the battle of Armageddon. Okay, so the staging ground, all the armies coming together. Verses four through nine are the battle, or rather the staging ground event itself. Verse 10 covers the latter rain and the pouring out of the spirit and the personal revelation of Christ to the family of David and the remnant in Jerusalem, not merely as the glorious deliverer, but as the one whom Israel pierced and has long rejected. And verses 11 through 14 cover the godly sorrow, which follows that revelation. So when the house of Israel finally realizes they cry out to their Messiah, he returns, they recognize him as the one whom they pierced. They're very sorrowful. And there's a, there's a deep mourning that we'll cover here in a minute. And then chapter 13, verse 1, which we'll start next week, covers the cleansing fountain, which is open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, notice in this chapter that God does not specifically say they are all Jews. And I found that interesting as I was studying this. He says the inhabitants, he talks a lot about the house of David, but also the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So there's going to be a lot of people in Jerusalem that are not Jews in the tribulation that yield to the Lord and give their lives to the Lord and God has a call on them as well. But he, he addresses the inhabitants a lot in this chapter and it's incredible because had they listened to Jesus in Matthew 24, there would be no inhabitants of Jerusalem at this point. And in Matthew 24, 15 through 21, remember this chapter in Matthew 24 is Jesus giving the Jews instructions on how to survive the tribulation. It's not to the church. It's nowhere in chapter 24 is it to the church. It's to the Jews. Okay, so let's look at these passages right here. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Now, that one section of verse 15 is so deep. You could you could study weeks on that one section because the abomination of desolation is the moment that the Antichrist himself walks into the Holy of Holies, the temple of God. This is one of four or five passages on how we know a temple must be rebuilt during the tribulation. But he walks in, he declares himself to be God, and that's the final straw in the eyes of our Lord because he walks in, he... he performs what God calls the abomination, which causes desolation. So there's no greater abomination than someone walking into God's temple, into the sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies, and declaring himself to be God. That's the greatest abomination in God's eyes that's going to happen during the tribulation. And what Jesus is saying is from that moment that that happens, so the back half of the tribulation, it'll be the greatest time of trouble the world has ever seen. And a lot of times we use that phrase, the great tribulation to mean the seven year period. Really, Jesus only used it for the back three and a half years. And it gets worse, progressively worse as it goes on through time. And he's telling them when they see that event. Now, this is a back 2000 years ago or so when Jesus said this, 
how would you see that happen? You know, you wouldn't, right? If you're in Jerusalem and some guy walked into the temple, into the inner sanctum of the temple in the Holy of Holies, you would never see it. And it's one of these technology statements in the Bible that God is, is giving you a hint that there's going to be something technologically out there that allows you to see this happen. And what's going to happen in the tribulation, every person in the world will be seeing it on this because it'll be a major event. It'll be a major news event. And the whole world's going to watch the Antichrist walk in there and declare himself to be God. And what, he, what does Jesus say then? Then let them which be in Judea, not in New York City, you know, not in LA, not in Paris, in Judea. So this is, a, this is an issue for the Jews. Flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. So if you're in Israel when this happens, you need to get out and get out now because something very bad is about to unfold. Don't, got, don't bother to take clothes. Don't bother to grab food or shelter just you leave. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. In other words, get out and woe unto them that are with child. So those that have small children in that day, you know, woe unto them and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. See the mountains in Israel, you can't really pass over them in the winter. They're, they're rather impassable. Neither on the Sabbath day, so this is another way why you know this is to the Jews. You and I, if we were there, would not care if that happened on a Sabbath day. We could go, at, we could leave and go as far as we want. The Jews, though, can only go a Sabbath day journey. There's only so far they can go during the Sabbath day. For then shall be, and here's where everybody gets that term, great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. So it's the, it's the worst time in human history. And praise God, we will not be there. If you are born again, you won't be there. And unfortunately, a lot of people will not make it into the ark. They won't accept Jesus before that time. Okay, so starting out in verse one here, I'm just gonna read verse one because we covered it last week. But the burn of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. So these three attributes of Christ as the creator. And we studied a lot last week about the creation itself and how he literally stretched out space and heavens and he stretched them out like a tent, tent curtain and he's going to roll them up at the end of the end of the thousand year reign. Lots of really cool science in those verses. In verse two, behold, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and, in, and against Jerusalem. So this phrase by God, it also could be re rendered a goblet of staggering in the Hebrew, but a cup is a well-known symbol of God's wrath. Look at Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which hast drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunk it in the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. And that same language is all over the Bible. It's in Isaiah 51, 22, Jeremiah 13, 13, 25, 51 verse 7, it's, it's all over the Bible. You can find that idiom used by God, the cup of trembling or a cup of God's wrath. In verse 3 here, and in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people 
and all that bird themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. How familiar does this sound right now? Though all the people of the, of the earth be gathered together against it. So notice it's all the people of the earth gathered against Jerusalem at this final siege. Now in that day, in Hebrew, this is synonymous with the day of the Lord. Okay, this is the, you can find that phrase throughout the Bible. It always speaks of the tribulation, the day of the Lord, the day of Yod-Heh-Devad-Heh, and which is different. If you go into Blue Letter Bible, type this in. It's different than the day of Christ. Now, the day of Christ is great joy for you and I if you're in Jesus. That's when he takes us home at the rapture. That's the day of Christ, when Christ comes to take his bride home. The day of the Lord is God's judgment in that tribulation period that starts when the Antichrist affirms the covenant with Israel. That day until Jesus returns, the day of the Lord. It's, it's a day of mourning and weeping and sorrow and wrath and darkness. If you study it in the Bible, just type in day of the Lord and look at all the attributes about it. You can build a whole list. So those who would want to crush God will be crushed instead. And notice that this involves all the peoples of the earth. Now, remember what Jesus said? He was a, he's a stone and anyone that falls on that stone shall be saved, but anyone that the stone falls on shall be crushed. You know, Jesus, you will confess Christ one way or another. At some point, the, the question is, will you do it willingly and on this side of eternity? If you do, then you will be lifted up and you will have a stone, a, a solid foundation to build your life on. Everything that you do then is for Christ and for the kingdom and serving God. If you don't, it's what Jesus said, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And that unfortunately is the point where if you don't do it now, you will do it on the other side of this. It's just then that the stone, you're crushed under the weight of the stone you know, Jesus paid for our sin on the cross. And what people don't understand is when you don't accept that payment, you spend an eternity in hell trying to pay it yourself. And you never can. You can never get to the point where you pay it in full. And so that's why it's an eternal separation from God. But you have to accept it. If you accept that payment, then you have fellowship with him. Okay, so why is the world obsessed with the city of Jerusalem? You guys ever really like sat back and thought about, it's in every headline, it's, it's all over the news, every world power right now is in the Mediterranean or in the Gulf, the Persian Gulf. Uh, the giants are literally back in the land, so to speak, figuratively. And the whole world is focused on this, this little nation that's one-tenth the size of the state of Oklahoma. And it's incredible. It has nothing really to offer the world except that God's name is on that land. It's not like it's rich in oil or, you know, some like major gold mine or a major port or anything like that. It's not a center of world trade. It doesn't, I mean, it has a great military, but um, they, they are the world's leading exporter of fruit to Europe. They, they have blessed the world with technology and science and medicine beyond measure. If you look at anyone that's won the Nobel, Nobel Prize in science or anything over the last couple hundred years or hundred years, look at how many of them are Jews and just go in and look at that. And God promised Abraham 
that his descendants would be a blessing to the entire earth. And surely they are. But God's name is on that property. And I think, this is just my speculation, we talked about physics a lot last week, but I think that when you unfold space and time itself into the other ten, the other six and a half dimensions we don't have access to, I think Jerusalem will probably be at the very center of it all. And it's probably somehow linked on the other side of this to where God's throne literally is in heaven. And that may have something to do with why Satan is so, so obsessed with taking it and wiping out the Jews. But God's name is on that land. It's his city, his nation. And isn't that just like God to pick something very humble and meek to confound all the wise in the world? It's pretty incredible. Okay, the nations of the earth do not realize how they incur the wrath of God against them when they touch the apple of his eye. Remember in Zechariah 2.8, God called Israel the apple of his eye. It's also in Deuteronomy 32.10. And when, anytime they do that, they bring judgment and harm against themselves. And they don't understand. I mean, if you look at Great Britain after World War II, they decided to annex a huge piece of Israel and annex it to create Jordan. That land originally was going to be a part of Israel, but they instead made a, they brokered a deal and they tried to, and they created Transjordan or Jordanian. And ever since then, they have never been the same. So anytime a nation steps up and tries to broker land for peace or land to, to create a Palestinian state or a Jordan state or whatever it is, that's not what God has for that land. God's, God declared the land from the river Nile in Egypt to the river Euphrates in Iraq as all of Israel. And ever since then, if you track Great Britain, they have gone just downhill progressively every single decade in every statistic that would matter to a society. Murder rate, divorce rate, their economy, GDP growth, their military. I mean, if you just look at it, and stand back, it's amazing how as soon as they did that, God removed a, a big blessing from them. Okay, in verse four, in that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness, and I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. So if Israel was disobedient and did not follow God's commandment and statues, it's in Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifteen he plainly laid out the consequences. And he even had these same three consequences for Israel that's now upon their enemies. Look at Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 28. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. So the same, the same judgment was upon Israel in their disobedience that God is now going to have against their enemies. So the victory, though, against God's enemies, it will be supernatural. Okay, verse 5 here. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like an earth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf, and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Okay, we'll be inhabited again. Now, isn't that amazing? God was inhabiting Jerusalem at the time he gave this to Zechariah. 
Okay, and then you fast forward, the diaspora happens, Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, he's ascended up to heaven. 38 years later, the time of one generation in the wilderness at Kadesh Barnea, in 70 AD, Rome comes in, wipes out the city, levels it, and the diaspora takes place. And they were, they were dispersed, the Jews, all over the world for about, about 1,850 years. They were dispersed until May 14th of 1948. And they came back and they were re restored as a nation at that time. Now, this comment here, sheaves, the sheaves were burned a few other times in the Bible. Remember Samson, when he, Samson was an interesting guy, if you never really studied Samson, but all he did was just these antics all over Israel, right? And with the Philistines and he took torches though. Remember he tied them to foxes' tails and he let them loose in the fields and burned up all the fields. Absalom, who was against David, did that in 2 Samuel 14, 28 through 30 as a reminder. Okay, in verse seven here, the Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first and the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. So the Lord seems to save the tents of Judah before the city of Jerusalem, the fortified city that they're all in. And I think a big reason is because God does not want the inhabitants of Jerusalem of the house of David to get any kind of prideful uh, perspective against the house of Judah or the tents of Judah. So he's, he's going to save the least of them first, which is kind of interesting. Okay, recall that after Solomon died, there was a very long civil war, if you remember. And that civil war in Israel, and it was, it was the house of Israel against the house of Judah. And here God will have a fully unified and restored Israel once again. So that the entire nation will be restored once again. And in verse 8, in that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them in that day shall be as David. Now, David, man, what a guy, what a king. Here's a guy that, that took on Goliath and sprinted down the hill without any, any armor and just killed one of the greatest warriors of his time, this giant of, Philistine, of the Philistines, with a stone. You, know, you have to imagine Goliath probably had a, a helmet and as big as he was, can you imagine how hard David had to throw the stone to actually sink into his forehead, into his brain enough to kill him. He probably threw it, it broke the sound barrier. And, and he's slinging it around. And then David, before that though, he had killed a bear, he killed a, a, a lion with his own hands. I mean, this guy was a warrior. And what God is saying that is in that day when he returns and the armies have surrounded Jerusalem, even the most feeble Israelite will be as David, will be that strong. So that's pretty strong. And the house of David shall be as God and the angel of the Lord before them. Now, the glory of the house of David will begin. We studied that. Remember, we mentioned that in 2 Samuel. The angel of the Lord, that's always Jesus, will go before them as in Exodus 23, verse 20, 32, verse 34, 33, verse 2. It's all over the Bible. Joshua encounters the angel of the Lord in Joshua 5. Remember when the children of Israel crossed Jordan? And Joshua is setting up the, the siege of Jericho. And he looks over and they haven't attacked yet. And he sees a centurion with his sword drawn. And he goes to him and says, hey, are you for us or for our enemies? And notice that Jesus didn't take either one of their sides. Remember, he says, nay, 
but as the captain of the Lord's host, I have come. And he was, he's the captain of the Lord's host. So anytime you see the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament or in the Bible, that name, that's Jesus as the captain of the Lord's organized armies. Okay, that's what that means in Hebrew. And Jesus has his sword drawn. Remember, he tells Joshua, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And he does, and he bows down to him right then. And see, Jesus is the one that fought the entire battle, battle of Jericho. It wasn't the Israelites. Jesus is the one that tore the walls down when they blew the trumpets. The Ark of the Covenant, remember, it wasn't supposed to go to battle, and Jesus had them take it and lead the, the procession. They weren't supposed to do anything the seventh day, and instead they did seven times as much. Remember, surround the walls and walk around the walls, and then the seventh day, do it seven times. So everything in the Old Testament, in the law, Jesus literally just turned on its head. And that's what he does for us. He fulfilled it, he turned it upside down, and he's gonna fulfill the rest of it when he returns the second time. And the whole book of Joshua, if you look at it at like a macro level, it just outlines the entire book of Revelation in advance. And if you've never studied the parallels of that, take a look at it. But even the name Joshua is a, it's a variant form of Yeshua in Hebrew. So the, even the name of the book is really Jesus. And so there's a book of the Old Testament with our Savior's name on it, which is really cool. Okay, verse nine, it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come up against Jerusalem. Uh, big mistake, you know, big mistake to take up arms against God. Remember Psalms two, the kings of the earth set themselves against, against the Lord and against his anointed. And when the armies of the world want to, want to actually petition the creator onto the battlefield, it's, it's the biggest mistake they will ever make. And you don't want to go to war against Jesus. You will not win. As much as, as much as people out there, even in the world today, think that they can take on God. I mean, just look at, my goodness, the World Economic Forum. Noah, Yuval Noah Harari, every time the guy opens his mouth, he blasphemes the God of the Bible. And, you know, why doesn't he blaspheme Muhammad or Allah or, or any of these other, you know, false gods? It's always Jesus. And that should tell you something. It's always an attack on Jesus. It's always an attack on the name of Jesus because there's power in his name. There's power to save. The power to, for you to be set free is in the name of Jesus. It's in nobody else. And the power for you to walk in liberty in your life and to be a new creation that the chains of sin are no longer attached to you, it's only in the name of Jesus. It's not in any other name. No other name under heaven can save you and set you free. And that's why the entire world is against it. Why do you think every single school, every school board, you know, every government wants to attack the Bible? It's not any other book. It's no other book but the Bible, the word of God. And remember, Jesus is the word of God from John 1. But this is, this is the armies of the world taking up arms against Christ. And it's not a localized issue. The cup of their iniquity will become full. Now, remember, that is throughout the Bible. Remember, anytime sin reaches a certain level, God has to intervene. Remember in Genesis 15, what God told Abraham, after 400 years, your descendants will return to this land. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And so God's giving them space because he's so long-suffering and caring. 
And sometimes you and I can get into the trap of thinking, man, God, you're really long-suffering, really long-suffering. When you look at what's going on to children around the world and trafficking and genocide all over Africa and, and children just getting murdered and the, Israel, the, Gaza, the Gaza war when they came in and killed babies in their cribs, you know, in Israel, you and I can sit back. It's easy, right, to sit back and go, okay, Lord, this is about long-suffering enough. You know, we need, to, we need some action. And, but God is so patient in withholding his hand of judgment to get more people saved and in the ark before it's too late. He gave the Amorites 400 years and they never got it right. You know, think about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21. Sodom and Gomorrah, remember Jesus and two angels come down, they meet Abram and Sarai and they say, the cry, I've, I've come down to visit because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, it's reached to heaven. God's, he's using that intentionally because it's volumetric. It's, it's reached up to his throne room to the point that he has to act and do something. And he doesn't let sin go on forever. And in the millennium, it's amazing because sin is judged immediately. So if anyone sins during the thousand-year reign of Christ, he just takes care of it right then. There's no more, you know, someone waited 30 or 40 years for justice. It's done then. And I think we'd have a very different world, right, if that was the case today in our nation, You'd, you would think twice, you know, people over in the Middle East, they don't want to shoplift. Their hands get cut off, like within an hour. Uh, they don't have a problem with that. And so that, that's the, the way Jesus will rightfully reign and rule is because he will judge it immediately. There's no hiding it. Okay, in Revelation 16, look at this in verses 13 through 16. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. So remember in the tribulation, it's the, it's the satanic trinity. You have Satan, the antichrist, and the false prophet trying to emulate everything Satan does as a counterfeit. So they're trying to emulate the Father, Son, and Holy, Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty, Behold, I come as a thief. Now, this is for us. This last, this last verse here in Revelation 16, in the middle of this, this is something from Jesus for you and I. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon, or Mount Megiddo. It's, it's Har Megiddo. That means Mount Megiddo in Hebrew. But that verse right there, look at that. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. You know, you and I, in the church age, we have a responsibility to keep our garments, our wedding attire, clean and ready for the bridegroom to call us home. And lest he walk naked, this is a Jewish idiom here that God's using because where he gets this phrase, thief in the night, is how they would hold watches at the temple. So the high priest had a responsibility to watch the temple in the Levitical priesthood, and they would have these shifts, right? The priest would come in, and if it was your shift, you had to stay awake all night. And if you were caught falling asleep, the high priest would come in with a torch and light your garment on fire. 
And what would happen is eventually that fire would wake up the priest, but his garment would be burned off. And so he would run out of the temple naked and he was caught naked because he wasn't watchful. That's where, that's where Jesus is using that for you and I, because he wants us to be watchful so that when he returns, we're not caught off guard and surprised of when you see heaven and time split open and Jesus descend with the shout of a trumpet that's gonna shake the universe to call his church home, you and I should not be surprised. We have to be watchful. So that's what he's imploring us there is that do not be caught off guard when that happens. Because if you're caught off guard and you're not ready, you could be caught without the proper attire to be called home. Okay, does that make sense? So you've got to be watchful and keep your garments, your wedding garments pure. Now, this staging ground, what happens here? God turned Israel over to their enemies a lot throughout the Bible. I mean, every time they were disobedient, he had some judgment. Usually he used a different nation, right? Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon or uh, Persia or whoever. And this, this time it's different though because the world's against them, but God intervenes. And what's different? The difference is the national conversion of Israel. That's what's different. Okay, in verse 10, I will pour upon the house of David... And upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So the Hebrew word for, and I will pour, it means it's used to indicate a transforming spiritual transaction. Okay, it's a spiritual transaction of, I will change them radically. I will pour my spirit out upon them. And this is the fulfillment of Joel 2, starting in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and the young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Okay, in Isaiah 44, verse three, for I'll pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And I'll pour my spirit upon thy seed to Israel and my blessing upon thine offspring. So what God's doing here, he's pouring his spirit out over the entire house of Israel. And he, it's prophesied twice in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 and 39, verse 29 that he will do this. I will give you a new spirit and I will put that within you. So God is, he's, this is a new transition for the house of Israel. See, the Jews never really experienced what you and I got to on a, get to on a daily basis, which is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's unique to the church age. Now the Jewish people, if they're in the church, obviously have that, but they've never as a nation been given the Holy Spirit to indwell them permanently, and that changes after Jesus returns in the tribulation. Now, this conversion of Israel confessing their Messiah and Savior, it's, it's frankly what the entire world has been waiting for since the king's first arrival. Remember when Jesus wrote in, he said, you know, if you would have gotten this and received me the first time, this would not have been John the Baptist. It would have been Elijah. 
and we would have just ushered in the kingdom. And because according to Malachi, Elijah has to come back before that great and dreadful day. Now, so the whole world is waiting for this moment because the earth will finally be put back together as it should be with a rightful king in Jerusalem. Now, the spirit of grace and supplications, these are both derived from the same Hebrew root that means mercy, gracious, merciful, or supplication. And it's a reference to the Holy Spirit and all of his influences. You have the power of the living God inside of you if you are born again. And a lot of Christians don't fully understand or comprehend that that spirit that brewed over the deep in verse two of Genesis one and put the entire earth back together again is the same spirit that indwells you permanently if you are in Christ. You have more authority and power within you than you have any capacity to imagine. And all you have to do is yield your life to him and it will just overflow out of your life in every area. You'll have more power and authority in, in what you do daily in your lives to pray over your children, for your marriage, for whatever God has blessed you with to put your hand to for a business or a job or a career, a call on your life, how you walk through traps and dangers of the enemy. It has, they have nothing against you because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Hebrews 10, 29, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. So Israel missed their Messiah, but look at what God's saying in Hebrews 10 for Christians today who miss the power of the spirit of grace living inside of them. You're held to an even higher standard than Israel was. And that's pretty amazing. That's pretty powerful. So just think about that. So this will all be the fulfillment of Romans 11 when the blindness comes off of Israel. They petition their Messiah. They recognize that they missed it and they, and they cry out to him. Now, all of Israel will be grieved when they see that he is the one whom they have pierced. Okay, this is a, an Old Testament reference to Jesus being crucified on the cross. And they will manifest their true repentance by mourning of really the, what God's using here is the most intense and forceful kind of grief you could write down, which is the loss of a firstborn son. And in the Jewish world and in the ancient world, having a firstborn son was the greatest, one of the greatest things that could happen to you because he would be the heir to your household. Having a son meant you could have future offspring and children and grandchildren and that would have your name and bear your name. It was a great, great blessing by God. But again, this, is, this whole thing is prophesied by Jesus in John 19, verse 37. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierce. He's referencing that. Now, Jesus uses this of himself in Revelation 1, 7. You know, behold, I come with clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. Now, all kindreds of the earth. Remember when he comes to take us home in the rapture, he's only seen by loving eyes and handled by loving hands. When he comes back the second time, 
the whole earth will mourn. Those that have been left behind will mourn for him. Now, there's an interesting attribute in this, in this verse about Jesus. Now, throughout the Bible, you can find God refers to himself as the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the Aleph and Ta. And Isaiah 41, verse 4, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 44, 6, thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And you see that again in Isaiah 48, 12. Now, the first and the last is thus linked to the Alpha and Omega, which Jesus uses, how many times is that? Four times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, 8, verse 11, 21, verse 6, and 22, verse 13. Look at Revelation 1, 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty, the Alpha and Omega, or the first and the last. So I found this fascinating. Look at Revelation 1, 17 through 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. So Jesus is using that language again. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive and evermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. So the first and the last, the Hebrews, the Jews, do not want Jesus of the New Testament to be the same God as the Old Testament. They, they are very deliberate in trying to keep them separate. They don't want, in the Old Testament, when he says, I am the first and last, and then in, in the New Testament revelation, when Jesus, their Messiah, says, I am the Alpha and Omega, they don't like that connection because for them, that proves that Christ was their Messiah and that, that they missed it. Now, they will finally come to, to realize that. But look at this. This is a picture of, of Zechariah 12.10 from my interlinear Bible at home. And if you don't have an interlinear Bible, it's really cool. It actually lays out the Hebrew letters. They go from right to left, and it puts the English right with them. So you can, you can study this. It's, it's a really good tool to study the Word of God. Now, if you look in your notes there, look at verse 10, and, and it reads right to left, but it, it's, it's going left to right. And I will pour out on Jerusalem, or all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David, um, and on its inhabitants of Jerusalem, the grace, the, the spirit of grace and, and supplication and prayers or supplications, and they shall look on me. Now look where that arrow is. That's an aleph and a tau or ta, the first and the last whom they have pierced. So it's not in your English Bible, it's not in there. And I don't know why, I don't know why the translators didn't pick that up, but I find it fascinating that Jesus is making that connection right here in Zechariah 12, 10, that they shall look upon me the first and the last, or the Aleph and the Tau, whom they have pierced. And the Jews will then finally make that connection that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the Messiah of the New Testament, of Jesus. And it's just one of those really cool things that's hidden in the word of God that you miss if you don't dive in and look at things like this. So I just find that fascinating that Jesus has it there all along. Okay, to wrap up here, 
In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of, of Hadaram in the valley of Megadon. Now, this is that word. It's a compound of two Syrian gods from 2 Kings 5. And it was that town that the last godly king of Israel, uh, Josiah, was killed by Pharaoh Necho and the Egyptian army. And so if, if you imagine when Josiah was killed, for Jesus to compare the mourning and the sorrow of when Josiah was killed to the mourning and sorrow of when he comes back of how Israel will look at him, that must have been a, might, a, a lot of sorrow back in that time when Josiah was killed. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart. So David the king, Nathan the prophet, and Levi the priest. And some identify the, this Nathan as the younger son of David and not Nathan the prophet. I, personally, I bet it's Nathan the prophet. So you have king, prophet, and priest. But regardless, the house of David the house of the prophets and the house of the priests are all going to mourn greatly at Jesus's return. Okay, in verse 13, the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart and their wives apart. Now remember, Shimei was of the family of Gershon, the son of Levi from Numbers 3 as a reference. In the last verse of the chapter, all the families that remained, every family apart and their wives apart. So you have this this issue of all of Israel be mourning at the return of Christ, every house. And they're going to be formed together once again in the nation. Now, so just to wrap up here, remember, behold, I come quickly, Jesus said. Hold that fast which thou hast that no man take thy crown. And you and I, as we're living for the Lord right now, you remember what Jesus said? Lay up treasure in heaven where neither thief can steal Moth can't destroy, rust can't destroy. You know, you have an opportunity in your life right now to live for the king in such a way that you are laying up treasure for him on the other side of this. And these five crowns in the Bible, I don't think they're an all-inclusive list, but they are five that God gives us as an example. The crown of life, the crown of righteousness, glory, the crown imperishable, and the crown of rejoicing. And each one of those is tied to something that you do in your life as a Christian. 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of righteousness, is if you're looking and longing for his appearing to take us home. So if you long to be with the Lord, he has something for you. I think that is amazing. Now, the rewards of the overcomer, to not eat of the tree of life, not hurt of the second death, hidden manna, the white stone in a new name, the power over the nations, the morning star, that's Christ, the white raiment, that's the, that's the garment that you want to be wearing when Christ calls us home. That's so that you're not found naked in that idiom that we talked about earlier. Being a pillar in God's temple with a new name on it, to sit with Christ on his throne and to inherit all things. All of those are in the Bible. Now, how are you an overcomer to get that? Well, you've got to remain loyal to God. You overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful you be spiritually zealous for the Lord. Do not deny Christ. Do not defile your garments and keep the word of his patience. You've got to live for the Lord. And when you do, now we've never studied this here at church, but I find it amazing. When you do all of that, you stay within the book of remembrance. 
And I, th I thought that was awesome when God showed me this a few months ago in Malachi 3. I'd never noticed it. But look in sorry, verse 16. Then they that fear the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him, and for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Now, isn't that cool? Because remember, the day at Christ is at the rapture, and when he makes up his jewels, when everything you've done in your life from 1 Corinthians 3, starting verse 10, is tested and tried by fire, and everything you did in the spirit is what remains, and some of them will be these crowns of gold, silver, precious stones. But when you are looking for God, when you have feared him, you're in the book of remembrance, and when he takes up his jewels, when he gathers up his bride, he will be, you will be as a son that's spared. And spared from what? What are you being spared from? Spared from the tribulation because you're in Christ. And then shall you return. So then we come back with him in Revelation 19 and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth not God. Now, if just we always do this at the end, but if you're here and you don't know the Lord, and it is so simple, Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is so simple. You don't have to add anything to it, okay? It's not about your works. It's about Jesus and his works on the cross. And when you do that and you yield your life to God, you instantaneously are born in the spirit exactly what, like what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. Remember, G, remember Jesus and Nicodemus and Nicodemus asked him, how, must, how can I be born again? And there's a deep, deep mystery there. But when you give your life to Christ and you confess him with your mouth, you are born again in the spirit to never be unborn and you will forever be with the Lord. And that is the most miraculous thing you can ever do in your life. And then at that point, when you have the spirit of the living God living and indwelling inside of you, and you then have the opportunity to break off any sin in your life that has beset you. And you can walk in liberty, the prison doors are opened, and God just says, just walk out. And you just have to yield your life to him and you can do that. But you don't have to do any of that to be saved. Just confess with your mouth, Jesus, and you're saved then all of your sins can be, that are as scarlet are turned to white as snow from Isaiah 118. So if, if anyone's out there, I am just imploring you to do that. You know, there's a lot of people that find us and, and watch these videos around the world, you know, months, years later. And <clears throat> if you haven't done that, get on your knees and your, wherever you are and just do that today. It's the greatest thing you could ever do. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you for your word that is imperishable. God, we thank you so much that you've preserved it. God, we thank you that you are the first and the last, the alpha and omega. And Lord, before there was anything you were and after there is nothing you still will be. And we thank you, God, that we will be there with you forever praising your name in your throne room and serving you in the new Jerusalem and serving you in the new earth and the new heavens when you put it all back together, Lord.
and we get to watch you as the miraculous creator just speak and it all goes back together as you intended for man to forever live in fellowship with you. And we thank you for that. We thank you, God, for this time together. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we go out in this place. Lord, this year is a year of war in the spirit. And I pray that you'd ready our hearts and our minds and our spirits to stand strong and to not back down, to be prayer warriors, to come alongside one another, to sharpen one another, to lean on each other, to run this race together, locking arms with men and women that are sold out for you, Jesus. And we thank you for that opportunity. So be with us and our families as we leave this place, God, in the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.